0: Hi, this is Dave, and this is not actually the intro to the show you're about to listen to. This is the intro to the intro, I suppose, because in the actual intro, I didn't talk enough about the live 100th episode that's coming up later this week. So um, here's the information for that for those of you who want to listen, and boy, I hope it's all of you. Um, We will be live on WPRR from 12 to 2 p.m., Eastern Daylight Time, so that's on the west coast of the United States, that's 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. And for those of you elsewhere in the world, you're going to have to figure it out yourselves because I'm not that good with time zone math. But um, there you have it. Um, You can listen if you're local on 1680 a.m. and 95.3 f.m. If you're in the West Michigan area, and everybody can listen at www.publicrealityradio.org. Click the Listen Now um, button at the, the top left side of the page. That's publicrealityradio.org, and you can listen to us live there. If you want to call in, our phone number is 616-656-1680. 616 616-656- 656 one six eight zero, and please do call in. We will be taking your calls, answering your questions, um, and whatever else you want to throw at us live on the air. If you don't want to call, if you're long distance or just shy and don't want to call in, you can also reach us through our Facebook and Twitter during the show. That's um, Facebook.com/slash/Doubtcast. And twitter.com slash doubtcast, you can at doubtcast on Twitter or um, use the hashtag RD100, hashtag RD100. And we'll keep tabs on that and we will try to respond to as many of your comments and tweets and emails, doubtcast at gmail.com, as we can while we're on the air. Those of you who are local, those of you who live in the West Michigan area, or want to make the commute to us, we're going to have an open, uh, an open house here during the show. So you can stop by, and um, there's going to be, I don't know, snacks and goodies and stuff after the show. Um, and during the show, you can hang out with fellow DoubtCast fans. You can say hi to us, watch us through the window, um, and point and laugh at us, and all of that sort of thing. So if you want to come down, By the way, there will also be free stuff that we're giving out, including, I believe, some exclusive T-shirts. So just putting that out there. Um, But if you want to stop by, come to the uh, CFI Michigan office slash public reality radio office. It's the same building. It's convenient that way. Um, And that's found at 3777 44th Street in Grand Rapids, Michigan. 3777 44th Street. Grand Rapids, Michigan, and of course, those of you who aren't local but would like to send us stuff, nice stuff, please, not mean stuff, um, you can send it to that address as well. So there are many ways for you to interact with us during the show. If you're in the area, you can stop by 3777 44th Street in Grand Rapids and hang out with us during the show and after the show. Um, And if you are not local, you can reach us over the interwebs or over the phone in the ways I mentioned before. So um, really looking forward to it, really looking forward to getting to interact with you guys in a live, um, if not face-to-face, at least voice-to-voice or words-to-words basis. So um, that's the information you need for that. And now here is... Um, A guy who sounds an awful lot like me, doing the introduction to the show that you are about to listen to. Welcome to Reasonable
1: Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion.
0: to a special episode of Reasonable Doubts. My name is Dave Fletcher. On our last regular episode of the show, we spoke with several former Mormons. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, you should. Episode 99, it's right before this one in the feed. But all of our former Mormons happened to be male. We did hear from a few female Mormons, but sadly schedules just didn't work out with them. We heard from a lot of them after recording the episode, and hopefully, though, we will get a chance to talk with some of them later. In the meantime, though, one woman wrote to us with an absolutely fascinating story, so much so that I didn't want to try to cram it in to the discussion on the last episode, but wanted to devote an entire episode to her. Her name is Sophie Hirschfeld, and along with being born, raised, and married in the Mormon Church, she is now a skeptical blogger and activist and a professional dominatrix. Yes, you heard me right. How can you turn down a story like that? So I spoke with Sophie at length about her experience in the Mormon Church and her life after leaving. This here, the thing that's going into your ear holes right now, is part one of that conversation. For part two, you need to do me and yourselves a favor and do one of two things. Go to www.publicrealityradio.org slash programs slash realitycheck or just publicrealityradio.org and work your way to Reality Check from there, and look for the episode entitled The Ties That Bind, Sophie's Story, Part 2. You can listen to it right from the website or download it to shove it into your ear holes at a later date. Or, those of you who use iTunes, which I believe is a good portion of you, you can go to iTunes and search for Reality Check WPRR. Make sure to include the WPRR, or you'll have a bit of searching to do to find the right one. Didn't vet that name very well. Sorry. Anyway, you can grab the episode there on iTunes under the same name, The Ties That Bind, Sophie's Story, Part 2. It's there now, so go and get it. And those of you interested in politics and social justice issues, of a broad array Women's issues, gay rights issues, um, religion and politics, etc., etc. Feel free to download some other episodes of Reality Check and to subscribe to that feed. Also, let me drop in a quick plug here for a couple of other shows I suspect many of our listeners will be interested in. Uh, The first is Paleo Radio. It's hosted by Jeremiah Bannister, who you heard from on an earlier episode of Reasonable Doubts and whom you'll probably be hearing from again sometime fairly soon. The show is on five days a week from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Excellent show. Lots of talk about religion and politics, uh, social justice issues, and all kinds of issues that you – our listeners will likely enjoy Jeremiah, in case you've forgotten, is a former set of a contest Catholic, a fundamentalist Catholic, turned atheist and uh, an all-around smart guy. Another show that I probably don't have to work too hard to sell you on is Culture Wars Radio with Ed Brayton. Ed, of course the man behind the ever-popular Dispatches from the Culture Wars over at freethoughtblogs.com. He's been on our show a number of times. He's awesome. You know that. I know that. So just go ahead and listen to his show. He actually has an interview coming up with uh, Sophie Hirschfeld as well soon too, so you can hear more from her there as well. Uh, But both Paleo Radio and Culture Wars Radio are on public reality radio, our home station, along with a whole bunch of other nifty stuff. But those shows in particular, you really need to check out. I think they will be up your alley. Anyway, that's my pitch. Now, without further ado, here is the first part of my talk with writer and activist Sophie Hirschfeld. Joining me on the phone now is Sophie Hirschfeld. Welcome, Sophie. Thank you. And Sophie, you have a fascinating story. So to start off here, tell us a little bit about your family background. Where are you from, and um, what's the religious background of your family?
1: My family is almost all Mormon. My mom joined the church when she was a very small child around the time my grandmother did. Mm -hmm. And my mom was raised on the Navajo Reservation in Arizona near Flagstaff. My dad that I was raised with joined the church when he married my mom. My biological father, most of his family history that I know of is Mormon. So it's a pretty solid Mormon background. Mm -hmm. I was also raised in a small town. I was born in a city, but my family moved to a small town because my parents felt that that was a better environment, and they were both mostly small-town people anyway.
0: Mm -hmm. Is this a predominantly Mormon town that you moved to then?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was mostly Mormons and Catholics Mm -hmm. around. Uh, There were a few other religious groups. Yeah, I, I don't know any atheists. Uh, From my childhood
0: But they're good at hiding, Um, of course Yes, they are good at hiding And this
1: was a place where If you were atheist, you probably wouldn't want to tell anyone
2: (laughs) Right, right So
1: I made that mistake It wasn't very easy
2: Mm
1: -hmm. I don't want to call that a mistake, actually I I did that, and it wasn't easy Right Um, The environment I was raised in was Most of the people I was around were not Very well educated Mm -hmm. They were very religious and it's interesting how the perspective is from other people on this as opposed to me because I see it as this was a very religious background, but my siblings see it as, well, we weren't that bad. Mm. So we've come out of it with different viewpoints, but then at the same time, my siblings don't see my background as as having been an abusive environment either, mm. and when I was a kid, you know, we were spanked with belts and wooden spoons and things like that. So so obviously there's some distorted views based on what their values are.
0: Right. Uh, now, now so. as a as a girl, did you see um, or looking back now, can you see that there was a difference between how you were treated versus how, say, a brother or the other boys around you were treated? Or are, are all children, male and female, basically the same?
1: Oh, no, we were treated differently. Your your life is kind of set up for you when it comes to, to boys and girls as a woman. The boys are seen as They're going to grow up and go on a mission, and then they're going to become patriarchs of a family. Mm -hmm. And the girls, your destiny is you get married and have children, and you become like a core home unit, you know, where you take care of people. And eternally, your goal is to end up having spirit babies forever. Right, right. You're primed for this environment from the time you're very young. Once you're in primary is what they call the Sunday school for for children. When you're in primary, you're already taught all about this. You have your initial part of your classes with everybody, and then the groups separate between boys and girls um, once you reach a certain age. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's pretty early on. As they're separated between boys and girls, that's when the kind of expectations begin to be set out for you. Um, you know boys are are taught to um, become patriarchs. they're taught you know they by the time they're twelve years old, they get their first kind of um, I'm trying to think of a title that's going to be more understood by people. Um, they get their first priesthood ordinances right and these and what that means is they they have their first duty as a patriarch basically within the church. And girls, on the other hand, are set up for, they're taught how to be this um, kind of pure example of what a a life should be. Mm -hmm. I mean, and then...
0: Which is a very subordinate, submissive type of role, right? In
1: a way, yeah. I mean, it's not that we're discouraged from being leaders, but definitely the opportunities are not laid out for us to do very much within a leadership.
0: Right. Like, like and women do go on mission trips, but only if they don't get married early enough, correct?
1: Yeah, pretty much. It's And it's not like it's an outright rule, but, yeah, unless you don't get married, you know, you're supposed to go on a mission. Mm-hmm. Your primary goal is within marriage and having this eternal position in life. Right. If you're a girl. So, yeah, you're pretty much set up from early age, you're going to learn to sew, you're going to learn to be a homemaker. When the They have weekly programs too during the week where after a certain age, you go and meet and have classes during the week with your peers. Mm-hmm. And for the boys, they went and did things like they did scouting things. They did very masculine activities and the girls would go and we learn to sew and quilt and and do all kinds of things that that were very girl-oriented. Right. It's really interesting, too, because this is the context in which I learned how to do the same things, and, and now I sew, and I, my friends joke that I live like a bachelor. <laughs> but I have, like, this one homemaking skill that I do all the time and that I'm always creating things.
0: Now, of course, you also learned to tie knots when you were um, a young girl in the Mormon yeah, church. Yeah, um,
1: the girls had this program that teaches them how to do survival things. Mm. And it's very much like Boy Scouts, but it's kind of like a kamikaze trip through what Boy Scouts do, Hmm. because you only have so many weeks during the summer to learn this stuff, whereas the Boy Scouts, you know, they have this year-round...
0: They take their time, because, of course, it's more important for them to know how to do it.
1: The the girls have what they call young young women's organization within the church. Mm Mm-hmm and and they have girls camp every summer and for girls camp you got to learn a lot of the really big skills and one of those was tying knots mm-hmm. and so I learned how to to do knot tying and I learned about restraints and about how to make traps and things like that and now I, I still use that today because basically the Mormons knot tying lessons are what led they kind of led into the uh, ability to tie people up for a living. Wow, so, so they were
0: really priming you for your, your so, current line so of yeah, work.
1: So, yeah, the so Mormons, the Mormons taught me how to, to tie people up.
0: I'm, I'm sure they're very proud of that fact, too.
1: Yeah, um, I've also used the same skill set to build props for the burlesque show. Excellent. I perform in. Yeah. so So, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty good skill set to have. Yeah. Time-wise, though, that's a very small amount of time Mm -hmm. in this larger environment uh, that we spent learning these
0: survival skills. When you were a child, obviously you're an apostate now, you've left the Church, you no longer believe, but Mm -hmm. when you were a child, were you skeptical then, or were you a full-on believer?
1: Um, I was was a full-on believer. I mean, I... I recognized the inconsistencies, but I saw them as as amusing. By the time mm-hmm. I was a teenager, I saw some of the inconsistencies as, oh, it's funny that a deity would plan things this way. Right. I didn't, but I didn't not believe. I still believed it. Mm-hmm. I was totally very devout. I even participated in some of the, um, they had, programs where you could go out with missionaries and help with
2: Hmm.
1: um, proselytizing, and I even did that when I was young. So I I was very much into the Church. I I totally believed everything there was about it. Right. Um, And that was even with... I I had an interest in archaeology. Interestingly, that does have to do with what killed my belief, but when I was younger, I, even with that information, I took a while
0: before i shed my belief it it's amazing how um how people can hold these conflicting ideas in their head and and make peace with them because uh, mormonism is pretty hard to defend from an archaeological perspective because there's very oh, yeah. obvious flaws it's, there right oh yeah there's
1: huge flaws and and i studied By the time I got into college, I studied Mesoamerica, which is Mm. really what was the the big killer, was studying Native American cultures and Mesoamerican cultures.
0: Well, and and even the fact that you went to college is significant because that's not necessarily the trajectory that a lot of members of the ALS are are on, especially for the women. Am I right?
1: Yeah. My family wasn't anti Education. Mm-hmm. They were, which is, is a difference. A lot of people within the church education is not a priority for girls. Right. But you'd still see it happening sometimes. My family was anti-intellectual, but they were interested in getting an education in the sense that that would get you more money hmm. eventually. And very
0: pragmatic approach to and it. And
1: they then. were, and there was the element of. What if something happens to your spouse? So education was okay, but the type of education was a big deal. For example, physicists weren't seen as people who knew what they were talking about, you know? Um, My dad's anti-psychology, which is funny because psychology is one of my big interests. You're okay getting an education as long as the education is what everyone else is okay with. Right. And initially I studied criminology and wanted to be a police officer. And then later on, I went into health education, uh, which was primarily motivated by the death of my grandmother and my mother's illness made me want to try to find ways to prevent myself going through the same thing.
0: Mm. Now, you um, did not go on a mission trip, correct? The way? No, I did not. Um, because you married young. Yeah, um, you were married by the time you were what nineteen?
1: Actually, I was twenty-one okay. when I got married.
0: Which is I was 19 which is kind of old when for events
1: leading up to that happened. Right.
0: So, so I so. mean, twenty-one is is not old, but it's it's on it's the young. I was engaged. Oh, it's incredibly young to get married for a normal person, but for a Mormon, yeah. that's that's yeah. not. Young. That's a little older. Yeah.
1: Um, the things that that tied into that, the events that led up to that happened when I was young. Mm-hmm. I was 19, um, but the actual marriage didn't happen until I was 21, and I had just turned 21. Right. So it, it took place over less than a year and a half
2: mm-hmm.
1: that I was, my family really, really wanted me to get married. Right. It was, It was a really big deal. It took me almost a year uh, before I was able to get to the point where they could set me up like that. Like, it was... um, uh, First, I'll give a little bit of information. I was significantly traumatized Mm -hmm. um, and was suffering from severe PTSD because of of some things that had happened.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And the solution within my family or one of the solutions was well you got to get married and getting married to them seemed like a very rational next step right and the only things i the things that i knew that i could draw upon were pretty much that okay they must have been right and in their mind this was also what god told them you mm. know this is what god had laid out for me obviously god set me up this way so that I could follow a certain path. Right. And so there was a lot of pressure to get married and to get me interacting with men, and it just took a year for me to interact with men Mm -hmm. in a way that would let me progress through any relationship steps at all, and and that includes, like, just talking to someone. Right. And there were other things, too. My family environment wasn't a, a really great, happy place all the time. I mean it's not like I was constantly in a terrible environment but it wasn't it wasn't a good environment it was very stressful mm-hmm. um my mother was constantly ill and my father worked a lot and I had a lot of siblings so so it was a very very tense environment not necessarily one I would consider healthy right and and so there was a lot of motivation for me to get out of that environment.
0: Mm-hmm. And this is um, this is an escape, in a way. Yeah.
1: So when it came to the point where I didn't want to get married, but it was a way out, mm-hmm. and it was what everyone said I needed to do, I I did end up making that decision. Even though I did have my reservations, and, I, and there were times that I didn't say, "I'm not sure if this is right." Right. Uh, it, and people but people would communicate to me that that this was right, this is what God wanted. And I'm not the only person who had that. My ex-husband faced a similar problem where people were telling him to get married.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And from his perspective, I was kind of a broken, good kind of situation. I, I was not seen as the pure little Mormon girl that other people the other girls were. Mm -hmm. I was broken. I was different than the other girls. I was not pure and protected. Mm -hmm. From his perspective, he's kind of being pressured into taking on the less than desirable, but at the same time, it's kind of like a noble guy thing to do. Right. He was not opposed to this. My ex-husband did love me. Mm. So, I don't want it to seem like we're just two people who didn't like each other.
0: Right. Um, was
1: this but like, I didn't know him very well. So it and, was
0: kind of like an arranged marriage, or is that um, mischaracterizing it? Not, not really it?
1: arranged. With the story was we... The very first time I went out that year was to a church dance that my brother had tricked me into going to. Hmm. So I ended up going, and... Uh, my ex-husband ended up sitting next to me in a chair because I I had refused, and this is really bizarre for anyone who knows me. I refused to go out on the dance floor, <laughs> so I was kind of sitting on the at the wall in the corner, and he came up and sat next to me and made some silly joke, and so he was the first person I talked to, and my brothers were there,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and and they were really impressed guy got me to talk. So he was approached by my brother, and then from there, it was that's when the setup kind of began. Right. My, I can't remember if he asked me for my phone number or how the phone number exchange initially was supposed to happen, but I ended up throwing away his phone number, and my brother went and got it. Mm. So the first telephone conversation was itself a setup with me and this guy. And from there, then, it was my older sister helped set up my first date with my ex-husband. And we ended up going out to a drive-in movie, and we were chaperoned by my sister and her boyfriend. So, I mean, all of this is, is a really bizarre setup. I mean, really, it was...
0: A lot more family involvement than most people would yeah, would be not, comfortable with, probably, in, in a yeah, relationship.
1: Yeah, and, and from then on, there were always people around when we were dating. There were always, I mean, we had very little actual private time. We were in each other's homes with family around. and
0: Which is a great way, way not, to get you set up for a marriage, Having not spending any time alone together and then having to spend all of your alone time together.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. we didn't immediately live together after we were married either. Really? We spent three months apart because I was in school and he was working in another city. Ah. I did manage to say and, and establish that I want to finish my degree before I do anything else. My my getting my degree at this point was an act of defiance. It was <laughs> because I at some point in my... Um, progression there, I had a lot of people go, well, now she's just never going to succeed at this. Right. And my response was to take that as a challenge. Mm. So basically, it was one of those, all right, well, I'll just show you, and and I went and got my degree.
0: So you I, had but, a little bit of that, of the gumption, of the assertiveness that you would show later in life already. Yeah,
1: um, most for the most part, I was very passive. That was my one act of defiance at that point
0: in my life. But it's life, an important was, one.
1: Yeah, it is a very important one, and it plays a significant role in my life now. But at the time, that was my one, I am going to do this, <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're just not going to stop me. So I, I did stay in my hometown and finish my degree uh, to get my associate's degree, which is in health education. And when I finished my degree, then I moved in with him. Hmm. And and that was an interesting day itself, because up until that point, I had also been helping take care of my mother, who was sick. Mm -hmm. And it was a huge change for the family for me to move out. My mother didn't actually want me to move out. She wanted me married. She wanted my... Reputation to be intact, mm-hmm. and and that was extremely valuable to her. But she did not want me to move out that day, so we ended, there ends up being a huge conflict in the house the day I moved out. Yeah, eventually I, I moved in three months later, and and that is actually when the I think the past that led me into. Becoming a peer counselor for DVS began Hmm. that day uh, because, and I wouldn't know it, of course, but I went into this environment, and I hadn't been there very long, and I'm not even sure how many days it took, but my ex-husband was sitting and playing a video game, and he lost the game he was playing, Mm-hmm. And he took the controller and ripped it out of the console and threw it across the room and broke it against the wall. Wow! And that was that was the first act of violence I saw in him. Mm-hmm. And you know, because I ha- I hadn't ever been alone with him, I didn't know that much about him.
0: Right. I mean, and, this is this is a fairly was, new relationship.
1: Yeah, and he was um, he was very quick to anger, and he and it just progressed from there, I mean, initially the violence wasn't towards me, but it it became towards me. And he used elements of the PTSD against me. Mm -hmm. Um, He used problems that I had to control me. And so, I mean, he did really messed up things. Like, um, one day he didn't want me to go out because he was afraid of me cheating with everybody. (laughs) I mean, like, we had these neighbors next door that were really rambunctious and remember I was still scared of men at this point Right. (laughs) but he was always accusing me of of, or hinting at me cheating and there was like he was jealous of the neighbors he was jealous of the courtesy clerk at the store I mean little things and Uh. one day he didn't want me to move out or or, I mean he didn't want me to uh, to go out because he didn't want me to go out he took the wheel off of my bicycle and hid it and locked it in a storage closet hmm. so that I couldn't go anywhere. And I was such a frightened and timid person, I wouldn't even open the blinds very much during the day, even when the sun wasn't a risk.
2: Mm-hmm. I
1: mean, I, I hide from the sun because I have a sensitivity to the sun. right? But but even when the sun was out of the way, I didn't open the blinds because I didn't want people looking in. And we lived in a two-story townhouse. <laughs> so it it was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But, um, but it's not like people were going to of...
0: walk up to your window.
1: Yeah, there, there's no way anyone was going to come and, and see me in my kitchen. Right. But, but even though I had that set of issues, my ex-husband was afraid I was going to go and cheat. <laughs> I wasn't even socially capable of doing the things that he
0: accused me of. Right now, your circumstances are are perhaps a bit more extreme than than the the norm in um, a definitely. a and Mormon I... household. Although I think there are obviously there are definitely relationships that are far worse yeah. as well. Um did you uh, of the other people you knew or have known or know now, was this a, a typical uh, relationship dynamic within the Mormon Church, or is this not something that we can lay on on the religion
1: no i don't I don't actually blame the religion for all of what happened mm-hmm. the The religion plays a significant role in that some of the doctrines that were taught, do, did play a significant role in how things came to be.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Some of the doctrines about how they view women are what led to people saying the solution to this is to get married. Right. Some of the ways that they view sexuality became a significant problem in my life mm-hmm. because it, it caused more damage. And so there are definitely religious views that led to this environment.
0: But, but, but you wouldn't say that the, it. the, the it Mormon church little... says it's okay for a husband to be abusive, either physically or emotionally, to his um, wife?
1: They wouldn't say it that way. There's okay. Definitely no, nobody in the church would go, this is okay. Mm-hmm. But at some point during my marriage, I did go to a bishop and mm-hmm. said, this is happening to me, what do I do? And the advice that I got was to be a better wife. Wow. So Oof. so um but I do I pin that on that person. Mm-hmm. That that person was to blame for that statement, not the church itself. The church really doesn't have a great explicit stance on domestic violence. In mm-hmm. fact, their view of domestic violence is pretty distorted. Right. Um but I think that in all fairness most of society 's view of domestic violence is distorted
0: yes I, I agree with you absolutely
1: so i can't i can 't really pin that on the church if i 'm seeing the problem years later when I became a domestic violence counselor mm-hmm. The problem is uh, of people 's view of domestic violence is that very few people look at it with any objectivity in fact, very few people have the ability to define it very well. as a result, I can't say that the Mormons view of it is any worse than other people's.
0: fair enough. Now going back to the the very beginning of your marriage, uh, the wedding you were a, this is a temple marriage, right? Which means that you are married um, in the eyes of the Church for eternity, not just yeah. till death do you part, but for eternity.
1: For eternity. According to the Mormons, if I magically became pure tomorrow, by their standards, I would eternally be married to this man.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Unless they excommunicate with me, which they threatened to do but never followed through. Right,
0: Because, um. of course, that drops their numbers, and they don't. Yeah. that's the last thing they want to do
1: you would think by now they would have done it though. And
2: mm-hmm.
1: I I thought about writing them a letter and going, This is all I do and I like <laughs> it and seeing what they would do. But uh but I haven't I'm just too interested in other things to, yeah. to do that.
0: Yeah, what's uh, why why worry yourself about that? But
1: Yeah, y- it's it's really not that important to me.
0: Now aside from that that con that concept of the eternal marriage is a Temple marriage, a, a wedding that takes place in the temple, is it any different than a standard wedding you would go see at a Catholic church? Or it's
1: extremely different. In fact, there's very, it has very little in common with a, a, what most people's view of a marriage mm. is. Now, my wedding day was interesting because it, it didn't go like a normal Mormon wedding either. <laughs> the day of my wedding. The car that my ex-husband was in had some problems,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and by the time word got back to the temple about what had happened, the rumor was that there had been a car wreck. Oh, no. <laughs> so, so I'm, like, waiting for this person I'm supposed to spend eternity with. Right. And and at this point, I I had already become skeptical of the church. I had already... Okay. Uh, I might even say I was an atheist by that time. Hmm. But I was trapped in this environment that there was no out
2: mm-hmm.
1: for me at that time.
2: Right.
1: Even though I doubted the church, I didn't have a way to get away from it. Right. There Socially was you were stuck. No there. social exit.
0: Yeah.
1: Everyone I knew was re- was either Mormon or some other very strict Christian-oriented religion. Mm-hmm. So so I didn't have any exits. There were no doors open to me. I couldn't just come out and say all of... I couldn't even express myself very well, because at that point, I didn't even know very much about atheism.
0: Right. So, yeah, it's not something you were exposed to much as a child, I wouldn't
1: yeah, think. Yeah. Um, That's something that... And apostates... In my view, the way I was raised, apostates are, are considered very horrible people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, you're painted with a terrible brush when it comes to how they describe apostates.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So even then, you know, I didn't want to be an apostate.
2: <laughs> right.
1: So so I there still wasn't an out, even though I lacked belief on that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the same time, I'm going into... You're you're not really told very much about the rituals you're going to do that day, mm-hmm. so it's it's kind of stressful in that sense that you don't know what's going to happen. You're taught that it's going to be this this beautiful magical thing, right? And um, and you hear stories. I mean, you you hear stories of people seeing spirits and and oh wow, um, <laughs> all kinds of things. Yeah. So this this magical amazing thing is supposed to happen, and I don't know what it is. It's a little stressful. It's a little creepy. And then, on top of it, my soon-to-be husband supposedly had been in a car wreck. So, and it takes two hours for him to show up. Wow. So we didn't make it to our scheduled appointment.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, in the Mormon, in the Mormon religion, there are things that have to happen before you can get married. And one of those things is you have to have your endowments. And the preference is that you get your endowments with your future spouse. Mm-hmm. they present. Usually the, the guys who have gone on a mission have already had their endowments done. Right. So they're usually doing endowments for the dead. Ah. Um, most people are familiar with baptism for the dead. Yes. Any ritual that is associated with your eternal well-being is done for the deceased in mm-hmm. the Mormon church. I was waiting for my ex-husband to be around while I was getting my endowments and, and the man's there for part of the ceremony, but not all of it. So, and this means that I'm in a series of ceremonies that day that I'm supposed to do. So we're late. He finally gets there. We learn that it was really just, you know, a tiny, small car issue. It wasn't a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so that stress is relieved, but then... The staff of the temple has to rush us through. Um, and in being rushed, there is no explanation for what I'm going to go through. Uh-huh. I have no preparation it, for this, other than what of, I had learned in earlier interviews. Yeah,
0: what was that? Well, there's a lot of secrecy, it seems, around a lot of the rituals in the There
1: the is. Um, and there's, there's reason for that, because I think that if it was general knowledge, a lot of people would ridicule it. Right, and, and, and like the Mormon underwear really say, and that sort of thing. I, I can't really say, well, the magic underwear are just a tiny part of it, too. Exactly. That's, that's what's funny. It's like the the ritual, even I had problems with going through this ritual. Because mm-hmm. I went through, um, one of the, the early rituals is that you do the washing and anointing. And right. this is the one that, that really no one prepared me for. I didn't even know this was going to happen. So like I knew about little elements of the other rituals. This one was not and nobody just told me this this woman I received my little um they gave me like a little kit to take me through the rituals. And I received my kit and then I'm told to to get undressed and they gave me this big towel with a hole in the t- in the middle.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I had to put that over me and then meet this woman in a little room. And I have no idea what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I'm already a person that's very apprehensive about people. Right. And I'm put in the situation that I have to go through. Um and my my mother was in the temple with me and, and other family members, but they couldn't go into there with me. Mm-hmm. So so I'm on my own. I don't have any backup people or anything for this.
0: And you're very vulnerable, you're you're Naked. Uh, yeah, except for you a, are. Uh, you're
1: you're vulnerable. You're and this woman. Um, I have to sit on this chair, and she says this prayer, and she she's blessing parts of my body,
2: hmm.
1: and and touching me, and I don't like being touched. Right. <laughs> so 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 it was a really really uncomfortable experience for me, and and it made me feel really awkward. It made me. It, it set me up to feel very nervous the rest of the day. I, I would think. So they do this, and and they she touches, like, next to, I can't remember, the center of your chest, I think? Mm-hmm. Like, up above but between the breasts? Right. Or next to the breast. I'm not remembering that. I'm remembering that quite as clearly, but I I was obviously pretty upset about that. And then she touches you next to your region right so so and and those were the two places that I was like i I don't want to be touched, yeah so I uh, I was very frightened, and then we go from there into the endowment ceremony, and at this point is when I get to to look at the stuff in my kit, and there is a green apron that's embroidered to look like leaves, <laughs> kind of pretty but odd. Like, and, are we um, talking
0: Adam and Eve fig leaves? Yeah, that's what that's supposed oh to represent as the,
1: the leaves for Adam and Eve. Wow. And, and there's a, a double veil, and these little slipper things that go on your feet. And these are all elements of what has to be used in the ceremony.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I go in to do the ceremony... And you're in a room full of people. There's lots of people doing this at the same time you are. And the men walk in and they're they have these hats that look like baker's hats. Hmm. And my exposure to baker's hats is pretty limited. And I was totally thinking Swedish chef. <laughs> I mean like, So I I I was, I was already nervous. I was already upset and then I see this, and naturally, like, the emotional extremes. Right. So, because of the emotional extremes, I was having trouble suppressing what was going on in my head.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, as, I, as I'm seeing this, this woman sees the expression on my face, and I I still probably looked very upset. Mm-hmm. And... So because I still probably looked very upset, she's like, do you need to step out? Well, then it comes out that I think I obviously looked like I was amused. Uh (laughs) And she becomes more forceful. And she's like, do you need to step out? I came really, really close to getting kicked out (laughs) for almost laughing at my own ceremony. So I almost got kicked out of my own wedding. Awesome, and and then we go through this ceremony, and the ceremony is very bizarre. There's a lot of you know, you take off the slippers and you put them on, and you put on the the apron, and the, all the girls go up, and we do like this little this odd dance with these veils, hmm. where you move the veils and put them over your face and stuff. It was it was really strange. Like nobody tells you about this process, and it's there that we see. A lot of what they consider some of the secrets of the church.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, a lot of people know about the Mormon handshakes. Mm-hmm. Like you hear about that. But you literally go up to this huge line of curtains. It looks like they look like stage curtains, like what you would see on a huge production stage. But that's not what they are. They have specially shaped holes in them, and you stick your hands through the hole. Now, first the men have to go through. They have to be pulled through. And this is representative of the veil. Mm-hmm. The men have to go through, and they, um, they are pulled through by someone else. You have to do the handshakes. And the men go through, and then they pull their wives through. My ex-husband did his part. And, and again, remember, he's, he's going through representing someone who has died.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, so symbolically, he's going through the veil as someone else. Right, But the interesting thing is, is the important part of him being there is he's supposed to pull me through the veil.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So if there's someone else, isn't it the case that symbolically I'm being pulled through the veil by someone else and not my husband? Right. Or my future husband, because they we weren't quite married right. at that point in the family. They're kind
0: of getting their, their imagery confused. Yeah.
1: So, so that was confusing to me when I was there. And so I get pulled through the veil, and I do the handshake, and I remember how how you're supposed to hold the other person's hand, but I don't know what order and stuff. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were really interesting little elements there. And I later would learn that they were stolen from the Masons.
2: Yes. So, uh,
1: that that we stole their secret handshakes. And then you, you go into the celestial room. Now, there are rooms in the temple that represent the different levels of the Mormon heaven.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So in the other rooms... That you go through are they're they're kind of mild. The celestial room is amazing. It is an extremely beautiful room. Mm. But the other thing that occurs to me is that the Mormon churches, while I was a kid, were not decorated, and the reason was because the Mormons were against worshiping idols, and they felt that the decorations were excessive.
0: Right,
1: and it wasn't until I was an adult that they started putting up pictures in the church that were representative of their religion,
0: mm-hmm.
1: so I come from that background and then I go into the celestial room, and the celestial room has the, the biggest, most beautiful chandelier I'd ever seen, and this is in the portland temple mm-hmm. it It was pretty amazing and so it's a it's a great room to be in, and it's easy to see. In this environment, this is where people hallucinate. This right. is where people think that they see spirits. I did not see any spirits. I didn't see any. I didn't <laughs> witness anything amazing. Mm-hmm. I, I I did think it was very beautiful and interesting. And at that point, when well, at that point, I also had a little bit of architectural education mm-hmm. because when I was in high school, I studied drafting and architecture, and and that. Part of the the high school, um, one of their extra credit uh, programs. Um, in fact, I did very well, so so I could admire this room from that viewpoint, and and I did. I was I was pretty content to look around and and think it was really impressive. So you go from there, and then you go into the wedding, the marriage ceremony, and the ceiling rooms are are a lot simpler mm-hmm. there's you know they're they're pretty but they're kind of a smallish room that you fit a bunch of people into and there's an altar and there are mirrors on each side and the mirrors they take advantage of imagery hmm. you're supposed to look into the mirrors and because they're reflecting each other um, you see into infinity. Right. Now, from our perspective, this is great science. This yeah. Is cool. yeah. You know, I want to take a little laser and, and play in a celestial, <laughs> or in a ceiling room in a temple sometime just because I think that would be awesome.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: But, um, at the time, at the time, I hadn't thought of that, but right. now I'm like, I want to play with a laser in there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, it's a it's a pretty room, but it's not super elaborate.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you sit across this altar, and this is where you make these eternal commitments to your spouse. And that that part of the wedding ceremony does reflect a little bit of what culture sees marriage as being. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you you hear some of the same kind of things. Uh, but it is a commitment for eternity right and then and then after that you have to change out of your ceremonial garb Oh, uh, and I almost forgot to mention this, this whole time this part of my wedding was done in uh, a Mormon traditional garment because there are only certain types of dresses that you can go through these ceremonies in right there's like requirements for the dresses um so a lot of regular wedding dresses can't be worn through the temple ceremonies.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and so if your dress doesn't match the requirements you have to wear a different one. And the one I wore was an eighteen hundred style gown and I can't remember what it was called. Mm-hmm. But it had like a drop waist so the gather was like on my hips and these it had these really weird looking sleeves. And it was a really odd-looking dress. Um, and so I leave this ceremony and I change out of that weird-looking dress and get the things off that I had accumulated on me during mm-hmm. the ceremony. And then we go from there and there's, like, post-ceremony things. You know, you take pictures and things like that. Right. So, um, so that's pretty much the way the ritual goes. And then the next day we have a reception.
0: Now... Talk to me a little bit about how your marriage eventually ended and you left the church. I'm assuming that those two things are are connected. Is that Um, right?
1: In a way, yes. During my marriage, um, my marriage was, was, as I mentioned, very tense. Mm -hmm. I moved in. Um, I didn't like the garments, which you acquire— right before, you paint the garments right before that ceremony with the men in the baker's hat.
2: hmm Yes.
1: Um, so y- you get these garments, and they're extremely uncomfortable. And one thing that's also different about me is that I, the women don't really discourage athletics, uh, but I wasn't ever able to join an athletic extracurricular activity when I was young. Mm-hmm. But one thing I did do is I was extremely flexible, and I liked that. So the garments that we got, while they were kind of flexible, they weren't flexible enough. They really bothered me. They were really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So one point of tension between my ex-husband and I was that I didn't like the garments. Um, I was used to wearing underwear that allowed me to move the way I wanted to. Right, um, underwear that I normal been people practicing wear. By the time I was married, I'd been practicing yoga since I was, it would have been eight years. Mm -hmm. So, uh, because I started when I was 13, even though I didn't know it was called yoga. um, I started when I was 13. So that element of my life, there was already some conflict. Um, And then I'm thrown into this environment with this person that he's very quick to anger, very tense. And then I still wanted my education. I've I've always been the type of person that I love learning. I love learning about all kinds of things. And I wanted my education. I wanted to be in school. I wanted to get my bachelor's degree. I had goals. And I was never the type of person who I didn't want what the other Mormon girls wanted. The other Mormon girls that I knew wanted a family they wanted a huge family and they wanted to you know their whole life was wrapped up in in having children mm-hmm. and and it wasn't that i didn't want that i didn't want a family it was that i wanted other things too right and and one of the things i really wanted was my education i wanted to be i wanted to be a linguist and i wanted to study anthropology mm-hmm. we had this huge conflict as well on my education um my ex-husband he wasn't as undereducated as a lot of the people I knew growing up, but he wasn't on par with me. Right. And he was intimidated by this. And he did later tell me this after our divorce, after, um, in fact, pretty recently, he told me that one of the things that he had as a problem with me was that my education was intimidating and scary to him. hmm So we had this constant conflict, and I did finally go back to school. I I started going to school, and when I was in school was when I learned terms for things that I had already thought. And one of those was, I I figured out, I found out what an atheist was. Right. And And I found out what agnostic was, and I found out, like, I had all of these things that I had already had the thoughts for them in place but I didn't have terms for them. I didn't have words for what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. And so that was starting to be built upon. And meanwhile, alongside that, my marriage was getting more and more rocky. Um, My ex-husband would come home from work and he'd be very angry and he had expectations and I had to have dinner on the table and dinner had to be perfect. I mean, like every little thing was a big deal when he came home. Mm -hmm. The littlest thing would cut him off and he would be throwing a tantrum and And you have to learn when you're in that environment, you have to learn like little survival strategies, so like everything from where I was standing in the room to how I put his food on his plate were things that I kind of was trained to do so so and, and I was a very skittish person already at that point in my life, so there's this rocky environment, and then alongside that, I'm learning a a way to. Talk about the things that I have on my mind, and I told my husband about my thoughts on the church mm-hmm. and my husband, at first was very upset about this because we were we already had conflict over the underwear
2: right <laughs>
1: and so it, and so that was a pretty major thing for him interestingly, eventually he didn't he didn't stick with his religion as much as one might think eventually he actually said you know you might be right which is wow that that's a lot of credit to give him you know for him
0: to, yeah this is after the divorce that he
1: no he, that during while oh, really? we were married while all of this chaos was happening he actually did tell me at some point that he wasn't really sure that that wow. he thought I had um that my thoughts had some merit mm-hmm. um but that could have been influenced by the the um, aspect of he was intimidated by my education. Mm-hmm. Um, my education was frightening. Part of that could have been because if I'm right, that's a pretty big deal for him. That that removes a lot of power from him. Right. Um, my husband served in the church as, as a ward clerk, which was a part... Um, it was connected to the um, leadership. Uh, he also served as uh, one of the teachers uh, one of the leaders of the elders forum, i can't remember which position he held, mm-hmm. but he was an influence in our ward um and at the time I was teaching primary classes, I was teaching the children so not only is it a big deal in the sense that it was a point of tension in our marriage, but socially we were important people in our ward we were we were big players right. you could say. There's a lot to lose if I'm correct about what I told my husband, and and he's aware of that. There's this tension building, and then on top of it, alongside the abuse, I was very isolated, so the only people that I knew to go to were members of the church.
0: Well, and that's one and of the things the church does very well is isolating you from anyone outside of the church, so that they can they keep do. you. Um,
1: they encourage you to be in the world but not of the world, mm-hmm. and to seek support from within. To the point that they will aggressively put that support on you. Right. So um, you know, like we have the visiting teaching program, the the ladies who go around and they visit the other ladies,
0: and they check uh, up on you, right?
1: Yeah, they they check up on you, see what you're doing and, and you even do that for people who aren't active. Mm-hmm. Uh and then they have the the male counterpart is the men visiting the fam, the whole family. It's interesting that the ladies visit the ladies. Mm-hmm. The male version the guy visits the whole family. Right. <laughs> so, uh that's just an an interesting quirk about that setup. And and they call it they outwardly say this is fellowshipping. Right. And and so, and in reality, it's religious priming. It's it's grooming behavior. Uh, the only resources I had were this the small network of people within our ward. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the abuse began getting worse, I went to people who were only going to encourage me to stay with the
2: husband. Right, right.
1: And that became a huge problem. Now, I did have enough exposure. To the domestic violence program when I was young to know that somewhere out there, there was some place for me to go. Mm -hmm. My mom actually had been involved with the domestic violence program in my hometown. But my exposure to it was that when I was in high school, I studied Spanish and my mom needed a translator one day. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: (laughs) So that was my awareness of this other thing. So what ended up happening is one night, December fifteenth of two thousand and three, I had pretty much gotten to the end of my rope. Mm-hmm. I had enough, um, and I had the unfortunate experience of hiding in a room while my ex-husband was outside yelling at me and 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 being extremely violent and pounding on the door. And mm-hmm. he he actually went through several full cycles of abuse. Well, standing outside this door. Wow! It was it was it was insane. It was it was bizarre, and it's one of those things. Like like even when I look at it now, it's a story that you don't want to believe. This type of thing happens,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but it does. It, I was shut in that room for several hours, and um, eventually, I don't know if he got tired of banging on the door. Or what what happened? But he just randomly decided to leave mm. and and that's when I took the opportunity to go and call my dad so my dad sent my brother to come and get me and this was in the middle of the night he, my brother brought his girlfriend with him he was in a pickup truck and so i had to pack up my pack up some stuff and all i had was like three rubber made bins mm-hmm. so i had my school books in one and my computer in another and Basic needs, in a third one, and I was crowded in the back of this truck with rubbermaid bins, and then I took a whole bunch of blankets and covered myself up, and that's how I went oh, home wow. in the snow. Oh my goodness! Uh, it was snowing, and we had sixty miles wow. of road to cover like that. So, a really dramatic end to to that relationship.
0: But of course, that's not the end of Sophie's story. Grab the second part through Reality Check's feed. For details, just go back and listen to the beginning of this episode again. In the second half, we talk a lot more about her work and, of course, still some more about Mormonism. If you want to read Sophie's work, by the way, check out SheThought.com and SexAndScience.org. A ton of articles there. Um, on both sites from Sophie and others, lots of interesting stuff. So shethought.com and sexandscience.org. If you want to get a hold of me and my fellow Doubtcasters, you can write to us at doubtcast at gmail.com or go to our blog at freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable Doubts. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter.com slash DoubtCast. And that's all for now. We'll be back soon with our live 100th episode, Sunday, April 1st. No, that's not a joke. From 12 to 2 p.m. Eastern Time, you won't want to miss that one, and you get your chance to interact with us live which is not something you usually get because we're kind of shut-ins. Until then, this has been a special episode of Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion.